The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome back to The Things We All Carry. And, uh, well, you don't know it, but welcome back to, to take two of trying to record an intro for this week's show. I, uh, the first intro was, was recorded. Well, I thought it was recorded, but then when I went to play it back, it turned out that I not only recorded my intro, but I recorded whatever was playing in the background and it was unintelligible and I had to start over. So here we are, me starting over, which I, I kind of rambled in that first intro that you guys unfortunately didn't get to hear. And I talked a lot about change again, and it's been a theme. Um, you know, I've got some things that I'm mulling over in my head and I'm making some decisions and I'm making some movement and I'm, um, I'm working on making those, those steps forward that I've talked about in past episodes where, you know, you, you, in order to make change, you have to change. And in order to move forward, you got to take a first step. You have to take that first step. And that's where I am. I'm, I'm, I'm lifting the foot and, and pushing forward. Uh, the thing that, that is nerve wracking is you don't know if that step is the right thing. You don't know if it's leading in the right direction. You don't need, I don't know if I need to, to, to walk in multiple directions at once just to figure out which direction I will end up in. And that's pretty, uh, that's not, that's, that's, that's as clear as mud, isn't it? So I've had some things weighing on my mind. I've been kind of consumed by them and, uh, I'm just trying to figure it all out. And I ask that you bear with me. I ask that you, uh, you just keep listening to the show and, and stay tuned for this journey. And, uh, I'm going to document, I'm going to record about it and I will have more on that as we get further into the next few weeks. Uh, I'm excited. I'm nervous. Uh, I've got a bunch of trepidation because the unknown scares the shit out of people. And I'm, I'm right there. I don't, I don't necessarily like the unknown, but I think I need to I kind of need to take a leap of faith in order to, to spur myself forward and kind of force myself to, to, um, to get moving, to, to focus on the future, focus on a, on a start, on a new start and focus on me, focus on the things that, that will fulfill me as a human being, both emotionally and physically, you know, uh, it's just time to, 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 uh, to move. I'm tired of standing still. I've mentioned it before. I don't like being stagnant and I've been stagnant for a while now and it's frustrating. And I think I get it in my head and I beat myself up over it. And, and, uh, I put a post up on Instagram the other day about self-talk about negative self-talk. And, and I mean, it, it eats me alive. There's so many days where I just sit there and I, and I, and I abuse myself, basically call myself stupid or call myself names. And, and it's not doing anything, but becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy to keep doing that. And so I have to switch that narrative in my own brain. I have to, I have to, to, to start acknowledging who I am, what I am, what I'm capable of, and just take advantage of it and just start moving. And the fun part is you guys get to go along for the ride because you're going to hear about it and you're going to see the, you're going to see the changes. You're going to follow the changes, hopefully. And, um, you can tell me what you think. You, you can, you can make suggestions. You can chime in and, 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 uh, 
you know, watch from afar and join, join this journey and, and, or, or watch from nearby. I don't know. I don't know where you're watching from. I just, I'm excited for the future. I'm nervous about the future, but I am so ready for it. And like I said, I don't know exactly where it's headed, but, um, it's going to be one hell of a ride. So stay tuned and, uh, you know, pay attention because I'm not sure where we're going with this. And, uh, I look forward to having some, some, some company along the way. So that being said, welcome to episode 101 of the things we all carry. Today, I've got Destiny Morris back on the show. Destiny is a licensed marriage and family therapist from California, and her practice centers around first responders, spouses, and relationships. She's a uh, first responder counselor, as well as being trained in EMDR and trauma-informed. She uh, holds individual sessions, and she has a group uh, of first responder spouses that she works with uh, on a weekly basis. And and those are, she, she practices in California, so to be a patient of hers, you need to be in California, but she is come back on the show to, to delve into a couple more subjects. Um, in her first episode, which was back in episode 79, August 24th of last year, we talked about hypervigilance, how it affects relationships. We got into the topic of sex, excuse me, of sex, interpersonal relationships, family planning, communication, and how the first responder, the life of a first responder affects all of that. This time around, we had a conversation. We started off with a little bit of hypervigilance, a little bit about her spouse group. We talked about family members of first responders. And then we talk about kind of the expectations of going into therapy, what you can expect from a therapist um, in general. Obviously, this she's not giving it advice. She's just saying, in general, this is what you can expect. We, we also talked about how to how to step away from therapy when when you think you've gotten your fill or, or you agree with your therapist, your therapist agrees with you that it's time to step back. This isn't meant to be an ongoing thing necessarily. In some cases it will be, in some cases it's necessary, but in some cases you get out there, you, you figure out what's going on and you step back and you do maybe do a maintenance session here and there. So it's interesting to hear a therapist talk about when, when she feels the time is now for a patient to, to kind of fade away a little bit and, and kind of lengthen the, the gap between visits. I, uh, I want to thank everyone for joining again. I want to thank everyone for your support. I want to thank everyone for listening. And uh, I want to ask that you reach out. Let me know what you think. Give me some suggestions. If you, if you have a story of your own, I want to hear that too. And, you know, in that canned piece at the end of this introduction, I always talk about how you can reach out to me. And the easiest way to do that is either Instagram or via email. And the email is stack at the things we all carry. Or you can just email the my story at the things we all carry.com. And my story will is a, just a good way of saying, hey, I've got something and I want to talk about it. I'd like to share it on the show. Um, so you guys stay tuned for Destiny Morris, episode 101. And uh, y'all get out there, take care of yourselves, and go do something for yourself. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show.
I do yeah. a lot of YouTube, and then I and I take what I watch on YouTube and go back and, and try to do it that way. Mm, that's then, smart. Yeah. Well, it it still takes me about a few years to get it right. <laughs> All right. So, all right. Let's see where this goes. How about that? Sounds good. All right. Well, welcome back to the things we all carry tonight. And it's tonight. This is a rare one for me because I don't normally re record in the evening, but when you get West Coast guests, you, you record on their time sometimes. And so uh, I got Destiny Morris back with us and I'm excited to talk to her and see where we're going to go this time. I, I think I'm going to throw it to her and give her a, a chance to just give you a brief introduction again, reintroduce herself to the audience, and uh, then we'll get into what we want to talk about tonight. So how you doing, Destiny? Hi, I'm good. Thank you for keeping your eyeballs open later than usual for me. I appreciate it. Well, I'm not I'm I'm not ready for bed yet, but I'm I'm gonna I'm not gonna be far away with this still recovering from the sicknesses I've had. I, I actually got a cold. Then as I'm tailing off the cold, I got a stomach bug. I had to leave work at eleven fifteen one night and I left work and I ended up not to get too into it, but I ended up throwing up behind an Applebee's on the way home from work. And I slept till two or three the next afternoon, went to work the next the day after that. And then the cold reinvented itself and I'm still coming down from the remnants of that cold. So it's not uh, an hour. That's bad. Well, That's yeah, real bad. Stress took over like, cause I, I don't know, I don't know how much you, you've seen on my page, but my, uh, my mom passed away on, on, on Halloween. And so I think after that, and then we got through the, the, the uh, celebration of life and everything, I think that my body was just like, all right, well. F you, we're done. And now you can get sick, you know? And I think that's what happened. Oh, I know. I, I didn't see that. I'm, I'm so sorry for your loss. And um, I want to point out too, and, and I'll, I'll introduce myself, but I want just to, to normalize for you too, that um, grieving actually makes our immune systems low. Yeah. So I'm not surprised that you got sick because your immune system was probably like super oh, yeah. low and all these germs going around because it's the season for that. Mm -hmm. Man, that sucks. You got hit with one after another. I hope you're Feeling better now. Yeah, I, I admit, like I said, it's the end of the day is when my throat, well, not the throat, it's just like the little cough starts to pop up, and and the crew loves me because it's the end of the day. Then we're getting ready to go to bed, and we're in a, we're in a communal bunk room, and I'm coughing, and they're just yeah. like, "Shut up!" <laughs> so you're about to get suffocated. <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm surprised I haven't, to be honest with you. So why don't you give us a little brief introduction, a reintroduction yeah. of yourself? Yeah, let me reintroduce myself for anyone um, who's new here um, or new to me or maybe just to kind of refresh everyone's memory. So um, I'm Destiny Morris. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I practice in the state of California. Um, I live in Santa Barbara County. I work from home, and I specialize in first responders and their families. So I see um, first responders for individual therapy, and then I also hold a group therapy for first responder partners, so the wives, um, fiancés, girlfriends, all of that. Um, to support them as well. And then I also work with um, teenagers, children, uh, first responders too. What does, and not to get too too, uh, too far off topic right away, but what does it look like working with the, the children and the teenagers of first responders? Uh, very interesting. So I relate to that probably the most as I'm a daughter of a first responder as well. Um, so I do have that perspective. Um, you know, a lot of it isn't so much that they're wanting to talk about the fact that they're a first responder kid. It's more so that they were needing therapy for, you know, anxiety or depression or a little extra support. And they happen to be a first responder family. Okay. Um, because I, you know, know the culture and I know that their dad probably isn't home a whole lot, those kinds of things. 
I mean, I do see stuff with like hypervigilance sometimes with those kids, but more often than not, they're just seeing me for like regular therapy stuff. Do you see, you do you, are you seeing hypervigilance in children? Oh, absolutely. Hypervigilance is actually contagious in a family. So dad's so, bring dad, mom or dad are bringing it home from, from work and they're, they're displaying or exhibiting the behaviors of hypervigilance, which we talked about in the last time, the last show that we had. And I mean, I think if, if you, if it's kind of like pornography, if you see it, you know it. Um, so you're, you're, you know, the back to the wall scanning for your exits and, and always on never being able to let down your guard. So mom or dad bring that home from work and then, and the kids are just, it's just a learned behavior at that point. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Just like anxiety is a learned behavior and it's kind of like, um, if you will, without sounding too woo woo -wee, it's energy that is very contagious. It's palpable. If you're sitting with someone that's super anxious all the time, you will most likely feel that anxiety as well. So for the kids of these, you know, first responder families, they're going to feel the hypervigilance that the responder brings home. I mean, even to speak for myself, like when I go to restaurants, I don't like my back turned. When I go out in public, I watch people's hands. Right. Like that's how my dad was. And I, I think that that's kind of how I've learned to function. So yeah, at firsthand, I know the hypervigilance that comes from it, but I also see it working with families. Interesting. All right. Nice little tangent. Thanks. <laughs> So for, yeah, All right, so I, I warned you before I start recording, what was the last song you heard? And I, I caught yeah, you off guard last time with this one too. You caught me off guard again because I'm having to use my phone to record this. I tried to um, be super sneaky and pull Spotify up on my laptop, which is behind me, and it wouldn't log in. And <laughs> I have no idea what my password is. So I'm going to guess, you know, I think I told you this last time, I'm really eclectic. Mm -hmm. uh, my part, my... Uh, what's it called? Spotify playlists are like way too long. Yeah. You got, you've I've got your got, workout one called good shit. I've got good shit on there. <laughs> That's a good one. I was probably listening to like Lana Del Rey or something. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I did a, I did a bit of driving today. I had a few appointments back to back. And, All right. Uh, yeah. I was listening to that. Listen to the Huberman podcast quite a bit too, when yeah. I'm not listening to music. So that, that'll take up a good chunk of your time. The, well, yeah, you have to ha dedicate like five hours for his. Time. Right. Yeah. I would, uh, I'm, I'm tired after two hours of talking, so I'm, I don't know how, how he does it. Cause that, if the three, three and a half hours of content he gets, I know he's, he's editing some of that down quite a bit or not him, but somebody's doing it for him. So he's paying. Yeah, oh yeah. Sure. He's definitely paying for someone. Yeah. It's which good on him. He's, he's got, he yeah. is a busy and he's a, he's a much smarter man than I, I, I'll ever be. So I give him all the credit in the world. I don't, uh, I don't know about, I think he's a wealth of knowledge, but so are you just different, different spaces. So last time I'm, I just want to rehash some of the things we talked about last time. So if people haven't listened to it, they can go back and check it out. We, we did talk about hypervigilance. We got into that quite a bit. We talked about sex and intimacy and that, that kind of decompression piece of, of the relationship. So you, you know, you're trying to come home after a 24 hour shift and you've got say 24 to 48 hours before you go back for another 24 hour shift. So you're trying to sit everything in, including, like you said, you you've got your, everything you left off, uh, kind of dropped to, to go to work. So if you're having a fight or discussion or whatever, you, that was kind of stopped. And so you're kind of picking that up. You're doing all your chores, all the, all the stuff you're responsible for as a, as a husband, a wife, a, a, a parent or whatever it is. And you're trying to shove all that in and then still have some time together where you're alone and, and, and you have time for some, some, you know, sex and intimacy. Um, we talked about finishing the stress cycle, ice bath, the Gottman therapy. And, uh, we, we touched on your experience with the Overwatch Collective. 
Yes, that's right. So that's exactly where we left off. If anybody didn't hear that and they didn't listen to it and they want to hear any of that stuff, it's it's a fascinating episode and it was well received. Um, so go back and check it out. I uh, I will look up the episode number before we leave, before we get off the the air here and I'll mention it again. I, I apologize. I didn't do that this evening. I didn't do a lot because I didn't get you to link for the show until about two minutes before we were supposed to record. So that's on me. Uh, that's okay. So the 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 couples therapy that you do. How do, first of all, how are people finding their way into the group and kind of what do you do with that group? Uh, okay. So the group specifically is just for the spouses or the partner of a first responder. Oh, okay. Um, all right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I work it through podcasts, social media, um, the Overwatch Collective sponsors my group. So that means that anyone mm. who's a first responder or partner that wants to come into my group and they don't want to pay the full $80 each session, um, the Overwatch actually cuts that in half for them. Okay. So they get a 30% off discount. So I, I get a lot of um, people signing up through there. Um, I've ran this group for about a year and a half now. It is kind of my baby right now. It's actually at a, um, a, a pause because okay. I haven't had a lot of people interested, I think, just because of the holidays and the new year. Um, yeah. Wh what do you want to know specifically about it? I'm sorry, well, what like, asking? Yeah. Are they coming in and, and it's a group setting, correct? It, it's, yeah. it's a, it's all virtual. It's a group setting and yeah. you, you're coming in. Is it, is it kind of, um, all right. So they, they kind of share what their experiences are and they kind of can uh, interact with each other. And then you're kind of guiding a group setting or what, 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 how are you working that? I got what you're asking. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's a process group. Um, it's not a, a support group. So there's okay. a difference between. A support group is something you might find where everyone gets in the group and we just support each other and share our experiences. The difference is um, with the process group is this is more, it's like individual therapy, but in a group setting. That's the most simple way to put it. Basically, what we're doing is um, the way I've structured the group is, you know, the first session we do icebreakers, get to know each other. They're very small groups. They're intimate. There's no more than five, usually six max that I will accept into one group. This last go round, I had um, 10 people interested. And so I split them into two groups. Okay. So I did one Tuesday nights, one Wednesday night. Um, but I have all these different topics in my back pocket always. So communication, intimacy, hypervigilance, PTSD, anxiety, how to deal with in-laws, um, <laughs> how <on>. to sucks to suck. How to, um, you know, raise children when you're a first responder family. Right. There's a lot of these, these different topics that, you know, we don't get an instruction manual for those. So those things we talk about, but it's in a setting more so where I bring up a topic and I will ask people like, who's experienced this? Let's talk about it. Um, so in a way that has the support, I guess, in the group, but it, we are processing. So um, it's very different. I have people who are a year into dating a first responder and I have people who have been married for 10 plus years and have grown children. Um, I have people who are doing great in their marriage and they're here to kind of just get a community going mm -hmm. because maybe, they, you know, you can't sit across from another fire wife at your department and be like, so what happens when your husband comes home super crabby and right. talking about these things or have you had, you know, intimacy issues? You don't, that's embarrassing. No one's going to do that. So I think people join it because they like that it's um, anonymous. Um, you don't have to share where you're from in the group. You don't have to share your last name. 
You can do the 10 weeks and then not keep touch with anybody afterwards if you prefer. So that is that's there. But then there's also people that are struggling in their relationships with communication or maybe their spouses are struggling and they just want more tools on how to help a first responder. And then that's the other element of it. So we have all these like topics we're going to go over, but I also have people do a lot of processing in the group and I'm there to, you know, definitely um, validate in here and hold space for. But I like to see the group participate in that. I say it's like, um, I want it to feel very comfy and, you know, like cozy. It's not anything formal. It's at the end of the day. I invite people to come in like wrecked if they want to be coming in pajamas, grab your cup of tea. Let's like, you know, really get down to what we're here for. We're not here to beat around the bush or pretend we're something we're not. So that's, that's kind of the basis of the group. That's funny. I, I kind of feel called out here because I just finished my cup of tea and I'm sitting here in sweatpants and a sweatshirt and, and I'm I'm definitely a bum. So that's perfect. I love it. I am also in sweatpants and a sweatshirt. So, and I, most days, if I'm honest, I do telehealth. So my clients can't tell. And I, I'll tell them like, I'm in sweatpants right now. Right. Like I got a blanket on my lap and my dog at my feet. So I'm here for cozy. I think that I I have more genuine conversation when I'm comfortable. <laughs> Listen, I've seen your stories. You, you, you're you doing therapy from your from your backyard, soaking up the sun. So I'm jealous as can be. So I, I've seen it. Yeah, some days I do. It's nice. I can't, can't complain. So if I happen to have a spouse listening, do they have to be in California? Yes, they do okay. need to be in California. Yeah. All right. So anybody in California that, that's out there listening and you're curious, go to destinymorristherapy.com. And I would assume that's the best place to start, correct? Yes. And if you are a spouse that's listening and you're not in California, reach out to me anyways, because I may be able to find you some resources in whatever state you're in. So I've also been um, a resource space for a lot of people that have reached out that I can't see because they're in a different state. Um, I am connected well in that community. So reach out regardless if you're looking for that. Perfect. That's awesome. I, I wanted to kind of touch base on that and kind of make sure that people are aware of what you're doing there. So, and then we can get onto what we talked about a little bit more coming into the show. Um, first responder comes to you and what's, what are the first steps? What, what are you doing with, with a first responder, male, female, it doesn't matter. What are you doing with them when they come to you and they say, Hey, I'm experiencing X. Okay. Well, it depends on what they're experiencing. Um, but I will say that especially for first responders, I know that therapy can be something that's very daunting and unfamiliar and uncomfortable. Um, I have I do my 15 minute um, free consults. I think most therapists offer that where, you know, I'll get on the phone with whoever it is that might want to see me and I'll ask them like, hey, what's been going on? Why are you reaching out? They'll tell me a little bit and I'll say, okay, well, this is who I am. This is my style. This is how I approach therapy. Um, does this work with you? We'll talk about our schedules. We'll talk about finances, all that. Um, more often than not, I get the question of like, what do I expect? Like, how is it going to be? And I always say it's what we're doing right now. We're just talking. Right. <laughs> it's not, um, it's something scary. It's just a conversation. And so with that, I will say that I usually start off, um, getting to know someone that's, I can't help you until they really know you. And the work doesn't happen until you feel held and understood by me. And you can't trust me to hold your shit if I don't get to know you. Right. So we'll kind of start the first, like, I want to say the first one to three to five sessions. It really depends on the person. 
and what they're bringing to session is uploading information. I have this picture of therapy. I'm very visual. Um, so I come up with these pictures often to explain things to people, but I feel like therapy is like, uh, do you ever do big puzzles? Are you a puzzle person? I've done them. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't do them on the regular, but I, I like, especially when, when I was at my mom's or something like that, we would do them. Yeah. I'm not a huge fan of them if I'm honest, because I always try to shove the pieces where they don't go. But yeah. uh, the, the analogy I have is about puzzles. So when you have this like thousand puzzle piece, you know, you have all the pieces in a box and I have this picture of my clients coming in the first like one to five sessions. They're just dumping yeah. pieces in front of me. They're like, this is who I am. This is my past trauma. These are some calls I've been on. This is my relationship. You know, these are my worries. And I ask a lot of questions in the first session, you know, first three, five sessions of like, how are you sleeping? Just general, like, what's your nutrition look like? What's your exercise look like? What's, um, you know, decompression look like? Do you and are you enjoying the department you work at? How do you think you're burnt out? How's your marriage? What's your relationship like with your kids? What's your support system look like? Have you ever been suicidal? Those are all the questions. And then some that I kind of conversationally ask. So it's not me just like firing these questions at someone, but more so as they come up, um, those are the boxes I'm looking for to get to know you. So I know how to help you properly. Um, and then once we've got all of the puzzle pieces on the, the table, it, it depends who you are and how long it's going to take to get them dumped out. And we'll continue to dump them over time too. But once we get the main pieces in there, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start to, you know, when you do a puzzle, you want to pick all the corners out, yeah. you pick all the yellows and the pinks and put them together. My goal at the end of therapy is to be able to put all of those pieces or a lot of those pieces together and flip that puzzle around and be like, see, this is why this is this. This is where this goes. Um, and then the person walks home with their puzzle and they have all the tools to do the puzzle themselves. So um, that's an analogy I like to use, but that's how we usually start off on therapy. I really go at the individual's pace. And so when I said, you know, they come in and say, I, I'm experiencing X and, and you're trying to figure out where you're going to go with them. So one of the things you and I talked about before we were, just, you know, we were in early stages of planning this show is, is PTS. And I think most people know it as PTSD. And maybe you can explain why the, the buzzword is now PTS. It, but I think, I think buzzword is a really important way to describe it because you hear, I hear a lot of people go, oh man, that's just my PTSD. And I think to myself, how do you know it's PTS or PTSD? Have you been diagnosed? Is it legitimate that it is? Or are you just feeling, all right, I'm a little angry today or I'm a little uh, whatever. And, and so for you, I know you don't diagnose, but you can kind of explain what PTS is and how it, how it is, I don't know, maybe how it's defined for us. Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, same thing when people say like, oh my gosh, my OCD is kicking yeah. today. Like, I can't like stand that. Really yeah. Do you have OCD? Because right. you probably don't. Like, yeah. Or, oh, my, my, um, the big one right now is ADHD. Like everyone thinks that they have ADHD. Yeah. I'm going to get tested. I, I still think I do, but I, I, I try to use it less and less as a crutch. I would say that majority of people, sorry, this is going on a tangent, but majority of people probably think they have ADHD because of the kinds of, um, social media and television and movies and, this, the craft that's in the food we eat, yeah. I think that all those things together probably give us the same symptoms right. of ADHD. So yeah, not to write that off. Most people probably do have it. <laughs> but yeah, coming back to, so the PTS versus PTSD thing is funny to me. 
I'll give you my personal opinion, and this is just a personal opinion. Uh, I think it's, uh, how do I say this nicely? I don't care what you call it. You call it PTSD, you can call it PTSD. I will say the D in PTSD is for diet, for disorder, right? Mm -hmm. And in order to properly diagnose someone, to treat them, come up with a treatment plan to bill out insurance, that D has to be there. Right, right. There, yeah, <laughs> like that is, as a clinician, like I see the importance of it. I also understand people saying like, well, there's a stigma behind it. I don't want to have a disorder. You know, um, post-traumatic stress is something that's a an injury. And with an injury, we can, um, you know, heal it over time. Right. And I disagree with that. I think that PTSD can be healed, but I think it's something that has to continually be worked on. Same with alcoholism, right? You can you can work on alcoholism. You can become a recovering sober person and function well for years and years, but you're always going to have to work on it. I, I think that for me personally, that's how I see PTSD. I say PTSD because I think nowadays people are more receptive to that than PTSD because of the stigma aspect of it. But yeah, properly diagnosing PTSD, I mean, you... And I could pull out my my diagnostic manual mm -hmm. and fit to you verbatim, but you know, you have to have the symptoms for an amount of time. You have to have um, the severity of symptoms. So, for instance, like signs and symptoms of PTSD look a lot like um, they can look like flashbacks. They can look like dreams. Um, the beginning signs of PTSD before it's actually formally diagnosed can look a lot like irritability, can look a lot like dread. Um, burnout can lead to it sometimes, depending, because a lot of times it's not not one call. I, I really don't know the number of times, like maybe count on one hand, that I've had a first responder say, oh, yes, it is this one call and this one just, it was the one. Very rarely, more often than not, it's accumulation of doing this job where you are seeing the same shit every single day, day in and day out. That's traumatic. And then all of a sudden you have a breaking point and you're like, wow, I don't really understand why I had the breaking point. I'm like, well, it's an accumulation of trauma that can also result in PTSD. Enough, does that answer kind of what you're asking? It does. You said there's a there's a time piece to it. And, and we kind of discussed it and I've always understood it to be it, after like a 30 day window. And I don't know if that's accurate or not, but I think I, I do know there's that time piece to it. All right. And, well, and I'm, I'm actually going to pull out my deck. Which is what you said you weren't going to do, but go ahead, go for it. <laughs> specific questions. And I will just be honest. I don't do, so I'm not a doctor. I don't do, um, formal diagnosing except when I have to send a super bill and I, don't take insurance. So I do not have to do all the different diagnosing stuff. Um, so it's a little rusty in my head, if I'm honest. I know all the signs of it, but with particular like time stuff like that, I would have to look at my diagnostic manual. So I'm going to look. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> and, and I will get back to you on a specific date. It probably is 30 days. Um, and it's very, it's different to like we talked about this too, like CPTSD, PTSD. Um, the C stands for complex PTSD. There's a lot of different things in there that make it complex versus normal PTSD. But yeah, absolutely. I think if you would have caught me right after I took my licensing exam, it would have been more fresh in my head. <laughs> no problem. Uh, 
what are the early signs, like, like specifically early signs of PTS? I know you've mentioned a couple of them, but let's, is there, is there a list that you look for when someone comes to you? And I know, again, yeah. you're not diagnosing, but you're still probably getting a feel for these people going, all right, let's see what they're saying. Yeah. I mean, and that it, I kind of, I need to know, I mean, I don't need to diagnose anybody, but I do need to know or label what they're experiencing. So like same thing if someone's, you know, having very severe anxiety, I don't need to formally give you generalized anxiety disorder, but I need to know it's anxiety in order to treat you. Mm -hmm. So very similar with, you know, PTSD, what I'm seeing is, like I said, it can be um, a dis a disruptance in either sleep, um, in life in general, related or correlated to a traumatic event or a series of traumatic events. So it has to be something that is disrupting your way of living, um, either in work or outside of work. And those are that's the first thing I look for. And those are the things that I ask. Like I said in the beginning, when I meet with someone, that's why I ask all the questions like, how are you sleeping? How are you eating? Uh, what does substance use look like? That's a huge one. I see people really take advantage of substances when they're struggling with PTSD because they're trying to self-medicate. So those are kind of the red flag signs for me. And again, those aren't like diagnostically, you know, oh, just because you're an alcoholic, you have PTSD. That's not true. Right. But a lot of those things do correlate to a diagnosis of PTSD. Those are the I guess the warning flags or the red flags that I look for when I'm sitting with a first responder that says, hey, this is what I'm struggling with. I get a lot of people that say, I'm just really checked out when I get home. I'm so checked out. I have a really hard time, you know, um, being present. I feel overly emotional. I have dreams about, you know, um, a certain, you know, child I pulled out of a, a wreck or something. Um, or I have a really hard time going to these calls or I avoid this intersection that I, you know, I was on a call where people, you know, passed away on it. So all of those things all point to PTSD for me. And then in order to properly diagnose this, the length of time and then the severity of them um, in order to kind of give a formal diagnosis. All right. So you, you have someone in there and you, you, you recognize that diagnosed or not, that they are experiencing at least the symptoms of PTS. What do you do? Yeah. So EMDR, I'm trained in that. Um, that's something that I, that's one of my biggest tools in my toolbox. I know you said that you've talked to someone on this podcast before that has received EMDR, but I don't think you've talked to a practitioner that gives EMDR. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, well, I have. Um, he talked about it. We don't, re we didn't really get into nuts and bolts of it, but uh, he, he, the, it's a gentleman on Instagram. You, if you've ever seen him, he goes by the angry Viking therapist. It's uh, oh, Trevor yeah. Wilkins is his name. And uh -huh. he, he, we kind of got into it a little bit. We talked a lot about his story on, on the show. So, but it's always worth talking more about EMDR in my opinion. And ironically, I have, I have a, I have a show that I just recorded last week. That's it's this guy swears by EMDR. He was, he received it after a very traumatic attack that he, he went through on a call and he, uh, he, he kind of got into it quite a bit, but that was from the, the, the experience of, of, of a patient, not a therapist. Uh, okay. I get it. Yeah. So I don't want to go over something that you've already gone over in another episode, but EMDR is the biggest tool in my toolbox. And that is going to be 
one of um, the things that we will try. I don't ever dive right into EMDR. I think it's very important to create that rapport where someone mm-hmm. feels safe with me as a therapist first. Um, I always say that's kind of a red flag if a therapist is like, okay, day two, let's start yeah, EMDR. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think if we're going to dive in the deep end, you got to feel like I'm going to be able to to save you and and also to hold you up so you don't drown. Right. So EMDR, if you want to define it, uh, first of all, it's what? Uh, eye movement. Uh, go ahead. I'm going to screw it up. Yeah, Desensitization no, you're, you're, and, and, and I forgot what the R was. No, that was a really good start. So, um, oh, and by the way, I looked up people. <laughs> I need to come back. I know you asked me a question and it's been bugging me until I give you an answer. Um, yeah, it says here to receive a diagnosis of PTSD, a person must have one re-experiencing symptom and at least three avoidance symptoms, at least two negative alterations in mood and cognition, and at least two hyperarousal symptoms for a minimum of one month. So you were okay. right, 30 days. Um Okay, sorry. Back to we'll get back. Now we're now we're now we're into my area where I like to jump around a little bit. So back to PTSD, like kind of break that down a little bit. What do you, what do you mean by some of those? What are the cognitions? What are the avoidance? What what do we mean by that? So let me pull this back up again. Yeah. So this is um, it's saying so two negative alterations in mood and cognition. So, so cognition you, is fancy word of how you think, right? right. Your mind. Um, so negative alternate alterations in mood, this could look like, um, not being yourself, yourself, right. Being extremely either depressed or anxious. Your, the word we use is affect. Your affect would be, Mm -hmm. um, abnormal enough for your partner or your family to point it out and go, something's wrong here. You're not being, you know, to be, um, so that's what mood and cognition is. Um, at least two hyper arousal symptoms. Um, hypo hyper arousal is the same thing as basically hyper vigilance, like the um, high anxiety, um, on edge feeling, like watching your back, or maybe um, people that I, I work with people that have been in mass shootings. Maybe they hear a firework and that causes them to have hyper arousal, um, and then. The other one is um, three avoidance symptoms. Um, I'm not quite sure what that category looks like, honestly, (laughs) reading that. When I think of avoidance symptoms, I think of someone that's, you know, avoiding. It says here at least one re-experiencing symptom. So one that's coming quite often, right? That anxiety or that depression or that hypervigilance. And then the avoidant symptoms, I'm not super sure about those ones. I'd have to look into that one further. That's a formal diagnosis. So a, a doctor would be able to do that. Someone with a PhD. So I think looking it up a little bit for me, it says uh, trying to avoid thinking or talking about the event, right. um, avoiding yeah. places, activities. So you, the things you kind of talked about, avoiding places, activities, or people that remind you of that traumatic event as well. Ah, okay. Yeah. We, so, <laughs> I said that, but not in other words. I, th- I think you nailed it without the, without the definition. So that's perfect. So you pass, you can, you can keep your license. Perfect. Love that. <laughs> All right. EMDR and it's eye movement, uh, desensitization. Exactly. And is it, uh, oh, reprocessing, reprocessing. Thank you. It's, it's been yeah, a long day. It's a mouthful and, uh, people think it's like voodoo weird stuff and I'm going to be real. It kind of is. Well, she um, founded it, this by accident. 
Yeah, it's just, it's just bounded by like leaves fall. It's something a woo-woo-wee story, right? Right. Leaves fall and going back and forth. And she found it to be like very relaxing and also soothing to her own emotional responses. Right. Which fascinates me. She's like, she's just walking down the street basically and goes through this thing and, and she discovers this, this process in her brain that, that allowed her to, to let, not just let go, but kind of reorganize that memory. Yes. It's, yeah. it's fascinating so, to me that that happens that way. Yeah. Bilateral stimulation is a big part of it. And, and again, coming off, I can go super nerdy and explain the ins and mm-hmm. outs of EMDR, but if you've talked about this, they don't want to. We've never um, gotten super nerdy about it. So if you want to nerd out, nerd out, have at it. Oh, okay. Buckle up. Cause this is my, this is my jam right there. We go. So huh, there is something called bilateral stimulation and that's the leaves falling that Francine Shapiro saw that created EMDR. So for anyone that doesn't know, she was walking or something and she saw like leaves if you were to drop a leaf from a really high spot, it wouldn't draw, it wouldn't drop right. straight, right? It kind of plays back and forth. Um, the eye movement part of EM, that has to do with bilateral stimulation. So if we were in person, I would hand you these fancy little buzzers that I have that I don't get to use anymore because I don't do in person especially. And what they do is they just kind of lightly vibrate back and forth between one hand and the next. So on your left and right side. Now, because I do this over telehealth, um, and some people use like a light so that your eyes go back and forth. I prefer the vibrating um, handheld things. Um, So over Zoom, I have people do something called tapping, which activates um, the the same bilateral Mm -hmm. stimulation. So um, a way of tapping is by putting one hand on one shoulder, one hand on the other, like you're giving yourself a hug, and then you tap your hands back and forth. and like very like heart rate, heartbeat kind of right. steady. So what that does is it activates the left and the right side of your brain at the same time. So logic and emotion. And usually when we're thinking, we're usually working in one side of our brain more than the other. You've heard probably some people say, oh, I'm more left brain or I'm more right brain. Um, when you do the bilateral stimulation, not only does it help you to use the left and the right side of your brain to recall memories, so this, this helps us to recall things that are in our um, subconscious, things that we maybe didn't even think about. We didn't know were their memories that we've repressed because our brain is so, so good at protecting us. It will, it'll shove those memories into the deep depths, right? And all of a sudden you'll start to have these, you know, that what we talked about the, just the PTSD, you'll start to have these reactions and go, where are these coming from? Well, it's that repressed memory that you shoved back there. So when we do EMDR, that bilateral stimulation, it brings everything out of that trash bag you shoved in there and it pulls it to the forefront of your brain. It's also very um, calming to our nervous system to do the tapping. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I tell anybody to like, if you're ever really stressed out, try the tapping on your own, do some breathing and tapping. It sounds crazy. I know. Okay. Woo woo wee. I'm here for the science. And I, there is tons of science to back EMDR. It is um, a trauma-informed, scientifically proven uh, method to treat trauma. It's also the most gentle way to approach trauma. The reason being is what EMDR is, is it's not me asking you like, hey, tell me all the most traumatic things that happened at that call. Um, It's not that. It's I'm going to have you close your eyes and you're going to tap your arms. And I want you to think about the traumatic call 
And I'm going to have you stop and take a deep breath and tell me what you noticed. And what I, what I mean by what you noticed is what came up for you in your mind? What did mm-hmm. you think of? Oh, I could smell this again. Or, oh, I could see that person's face. Or, um, oh, it gave me really bad anxiety. Or, wow, I don't know why, but it reminded me of my dad. Like, there's no wrong answer with EMDR, but that's how we re, that's how we reprocess. So one more thing I want to put in here. Probably have a hundred more things, but mm-hmm. with EMDR, it's so complicated, but it really isn't. It's um, like, let's say you and I were standing next to each other and we're, let's say we're both first responders and we, we're both trained. Let's say we've both been working the same amount of years. We come up on an accident and maybe it's fatality of children. Let's say you have children at home. I don't. So for you, when you see these children, you might go in the moment, right? You do your job. After the call, you might feel really heavy. You might go home and just want to, you know, love on your kids and it might just be heavy on you. You might dream about it. You might start to develop some of these pre-PTSD signs, right? That anxiety, the depression, the hypervigilance, um, the dread for going back to work, the dread that it's going to be a call like that. I might leave the call and be totally fine. Maybe not even think about it again and it just be another thing. So there's certain things in our brain that categorize events as traumatic or not. So something in your brain said that's traumatic, while something in my brain said that's not traumatic. But another call that affects me but not you could, right, vice versa, could affect me. So I like to picture these shelves in our brains when we see something that we store as traumatic, we put on this trauma shelf and we label it trauma. What EMDR does is we're going to take that almost like film or the video or the memory of the trauma. We're going to take it off the shelf. And in our session through EMDR and exposure therapy, we're going to, I'm going to re-expose you to that really gut-wrenching thing. This is a part of EMDR that scares the shit out of people that they they don't want to do it right. because I'm making you face the monster. We are going to sit together and we are going to rethink about it and re-experience the feelings as and maybe the feelings you never even, you know, as first responders, you don't have time to sit and cry about your calls, right? You probably compartmentalize it, shove it in that, you know, container and you move on to the next call. So it's giving us time to process. And a lot of times processing is is having emotion come up. EMDR is also like a plunger. So a lot of stuff we don't know that sits there, it starts to come up and it's going to come out. And sometimes it comes out through big emotions. Sometimes it comes out through anxiety or uncomfortability. Um, that's why it's so important for me to have a good relationship with my client before we start EMDR, especially right. for the heavy stuff. Because I, they need to trust that I'm going to pull them out of it. So the goal of EMDR is to take it off the the shelf of trauma, to process it. And then the R of EMDR is reprocessing, is to rewire the way your brain thinks about that memory as just a memory. And so I can't wipe your memory, obviously. I would be a millionaire if I could <laughs> wipe people's memories. Yes. I'd have a line out the door. Um, I can't do that. But what I can do is with EMDR, I can take all of the negative feelings and um, and emotions around that call and take them away. So it's just a call. Um, and for people that have been in this industry for, you know, 10, 20 years that are coming to see me, we've got a, a list out the door of calls like this. 
Um, Hey guys, quick break right here just to check in and thank each of you for listening to the show. Your support has been paramount and I appreciate all of you. I have one request though. I need you to share the show with everyone you know. Help me get the word out and spread these stories as far and as wide as we can. While you're at it, please leave a review of the show wherever you happen to listen. Feel free to reach out to me at any time to share your story, to talk, or to pass on suggestions. Let's get on with the rest of the show. Do this. I don't know how to phrase this question. It's a weird one. There's so many calls that we experienced that that there are times where I I get on this reminiscing kick with, with coworkers and they're like, Oh, I did this call. And, and, you know, eight years ago I ran this call, I ran this baby or this, you know, whatever. And then you're, then all of a sudden you're like, wait a second, I did this, I did that. And you're, 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 you're dredging up these memories that we've, like you said, you put back there and they're, they have cobwebs on them and, and you're not remembering them until these certain moments. So I guess, I guess my question is about EMDR is, do you have to know an incident to, for EMDR to be effective? No, no. There's a couple ways you can start it. So you can start it from an inc- incident, a specific one, or have this, um, this lovely little list that we start off with on the left side of the list are something we call negative cognitions or basically negative thoughts. And on the right side is the positive cognitions and mm-hmm. positive thoughts. I do this with everyone when we start and I say, okay, I want you to go down this list and I want you to pick out the ones that stand out to you. So this list says things like, I am alone, um, I failed, um, I am, they're I am statements basically that are negative. So, and there's tons of them. So you pick out four. And then before we do EMDR, I ask you, when is the first time in your life that you've ever felt I am a failure? Uh, when is the most recent time you felt I am a failure? When is the most intense time you felt I am a failure? What we're doing is I'm kind of creating like spider webs in a sense back to the things in your life. Maybe totally feels not relevant to you. Maybe the last time, the first time you ever felt like you were a failure is, you know, when you were playing basketball at recess and you weren't able to, you know, do what you wanted to do. It might not feel related, but going back to that call where you and I are standing next to each other and it affects you, but it doesn't affect me. All of that stuff in your childhood, all that stuff that you that have made you who you are today, that is what has caused you to react to that particular instance um, and and for someone else not to. So we do that. That's a way that we can start EMDR as well is by just starting at one of those like, okay, I'm going to have you. We're going to do some tapping. We're going to think about um, I am a failure and let's let's tap through that. See what comes up for you. A lot of times there will be a memory that is tied to it. And then we work from that memory once it pops up. How do you balance doing that versus quote unquote planting a seed? Planting this. Like, like, hmm. I know this was a weird one, I guess. Like what I mean by planting a seed is, is, um, because you're asking very general questions. And those, those are perfect. And I guess that's the answer to the question. You're asking these general questions, not, um, w- when X happened or what it's, it's a, when did you feel sad or when did you feel angry or when did you first feel angry? When's it? So I guess in the way those questions are, are asked kind of answers what I was thinking, because I, you can, humans are very susceptible to being led down a path. Yes. And, and I can see that being 
I can see that becoming a case in, in these interviews, in this, this, this setting kind of quickly, if you don't ask the questions correctly. Yes, absolutely. And, That's and, why it's important that someone's trained properly in EMDR. Um, <laughs> And that you're not going to someone that's a life coach that says they're going to do EMDR with you. Like you need to be seeing someone that's a licensed practitioner that has the trainings in EMDR so they know how to ask you the questions. So there's not a bias that's leading you down a certain road that you don't need to be doing the work in. Yeah. And I, I suppose that's, that's kind of what I was getting at that, that um, you were so, like I said, we're susceptible to being kind of tricked into thinking something. And I can see that happening if it's not done correctly. Sure. I think as a therapist hearing that too, I mean, I don't have any, I can't think of one thing that I would benefit in by trying to bring a client down a certain path. <laughs> like right. I'm there to support them where they're at. But um, I also, I mean, a big part of this too is I've had people that EMDR doesn't work for them. Um, and I think you kind of have to believe it works in order for it to work. I know that sounds funky, but it's it's very true because if you come in here and you're like, yeah, I just don't really, I, I can't get into it because you have to do the visualizing of the scene and all of that again. Or maybe you're just, you can't sit with it. Maybe it's too much to do that and you need to talk through it and talk therapy is, is a better option for you. Then we don't do EMDRs. So it's not a one size fits all. It's really different. Some people I do talk therapy and EMDR together where we'll do half the session EMDR and, or parts of the session EMDR will go back and forth between EMDR and processing it verbally, which is not the way we're trained to do it. But I, I've seen a lot of success in kind of tailoring it to each individual and what they need. Yeah. I, th I would imagine if someone comes in and says, ah, oh, that sounds hokey as hell. I'm, I'm, I'm never going to get anything from it. The first thing out of your, in your brain is like, well, that's, that's quite a negative bias. And so if, if you've already convinced yourself it's not going to work, it's not going to work. Yeah, why, why try it? I mean, we can try it, but if it's not going to work for you, then it's, it's, it's just a tool in a toolbox. I mean, it's, it's a very gentle right. approach, but it doesn't have to be the only approach. Like we can also talk about the trauma. We can, we can do other visualization without the tapping. Um, yeah, it's, it's really not a one size fits all. So you're working with a, a client and, or, or you have somebody ask you, Hey, um, how do you know you're a fit? Mm-hmm. How do, how do but, I know a therapist is a good fit for me? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, therapy, I have got two analogies for you. I've got two really bad analogies for you. So therapy is like thrift store shopping, kind of. Uh, you got to dig through a lot of the stuff to find the good, the good ones. Mm -hmm. um, it's also like speed dating, right? Mm. You, you got to find a good match and when you find it, you know. Um, I will say that everybody is going to have a different flavor of what they need from therapy. So I can speak from my personality. Um, and this is what I share in my 15-minute consultation. This is why I will always, always tell people, do the 15-minute consultation and make sure that that person is a you know personality you can talk to. If you feel like you can't talk to them on the phone for 15 minutes, yeah. you are not going to be able to get into your traumas in an hour. You're definitely not going to do multiple hour sessions. No, if that person annoys you, I have a lot of people that will follow me on Instagram and watch my stories first, listen to my podcast and kind of vet me out that way and say, okay, I like what you've talked about. You know, you seem like you know your shit. I had also people probably that watch my stuff and they're like, oh, she's annoying. I, I don't think I could sit with her. That's fine or not your cup of tea. 
it's important that you find a therapist whose personality and approach is something that works for you. So when I mean approach, I mean, for me specifically, um, probably because I work mostly with men and first responders, I'm very goal oriented. Um, I'm not trying to keep people in therapy forever. I really am wanting to get to the the bottom of what we need to work on. I'm here to support you in it, but I'm also here to move you forward. Um, I have my approach is very direct and very no you know no BS. I like to challenge people, call things out as I see them. I'm not here just to listen to your stuff. I'm here to actually create a solution. I'm not a therapist that gives you like written homework. I'm more so the one that says, "Hey, I want you to think about this over the week or notice this over the week," and then we'll come back. So that's my style. Some people might like to have maybe someone that's a little bit more giving like homework or going through a workbook with them. So those are the questions you want to ask when you're doing a 15 minute consultation. I also, so it's not awkward. I always say to my clients, like, you know, if I'm not your cup of tea or you decide you don't really want to work with me for whatever reason, please let me know. Because it's not beneficial for me to pour all this work into someone if they know it's not going to work out. Right. I would much rather refer you to my colleague who maybe you work better with a male than a female. Or maybe you prefer a counselor or therapist that has been a first responder. So I know that even though, you know, I do my due diligence to be culturally competent and, you know, been in the family of a first responder and worked with first responders and I have the clinical trauma-informed stuff. Um, I myself, I've never been a firefighter. I've never been a police officer. So maybe that person feels like they need that to be understood. Those are the things you want to know about yourself when you go into therapy. Um, and, and you want to find someone who is culturally competent. You don't have to, but it's going to be a lot more helpful for first responders because they don't have to go and explain you know, their job and all the cultural things of their job that someone wouldn't typically know. Yeah, that... That um, there's a hesitation, I think, on first responders, and and I I'm speaking obviously from a firefighter's point of view to to go in and actually say what's on our mind, because oh, yeah. uh, that fear is oh the, this person is never going to get what I'm thinking. You know, start with the dark humor, whatever you want to say. People, we are convinced that nobody's going to get it because because to be honest, you now of course we shouldn't say some stuff in certain settings but we have said things in settings and and you literally hear the the record scratch and the brake squeal and you're like oh fuck i said it um i shouldn't have said that i shouldn't have said that and then then that then you stop saying some of that stuff and then you're hesitant to say it even in the setting where you're actually supposed to say it right yeah i think the the horror stories that i hear when i always ask um that's another thing i ask in my 15 minute consultations is you know, have you done therapy in the past? What was your experience? I've heard some nightmare of experiences with that question where people will say, you know, yeah, I went to therapy and I told the therapist about the call and she started crying <laughs> or I went to therapy and I told the therapist about the call and she told me she couldn't see me anymore because it was just too much for her to work with that. That is my worst fear for first responders is that they will feel shamed mm-hmm. in what they are bringing to therapy. I guarantee it. I write it on my website. I try to talk about it a lot. I can sit with your gory, heavy, gnarly details because I know how to dump it when we're done. That's my job. My job is to hold it in a container. And then when we finish our session, I dump that shit. And I am really good at doing that. And I've had to get good at doing that. And I guarantee that I do enough self-care that I'm able to sit with and hold 
those things? That's a question I think that every first responder should ask the therapist before they sit with them. Can you sit with these things? It's kind of like the, the, the joke I've heard before is like, I, so you're a great saying in general, you're a great therapist, but you're a great therapist because you have a good therapist. So I want to go to your therapist, you know, and it's that kind of thing. It, I, I know a little tangent there. Um, yeah, you, you sure. slipped in a word there that, that are two words, a term there that, that I'm kind of familiar with, but, but not competent with. And, and I, I don't know if the audience has really heard it before trauma informed. Ah, yes. What is it? What does it mean? How do you worry? What, what, is, what difference does that make? What is trauma informed? Huge. So let's, I'll explain it very simply and then I'll explain it clinically. So um, it's the difference between, let's say that, let's say you've got PTSD. Let's say you, let's say you're a veteran, you've got combat PTSD. Say you've seen some shit frontline, right? You need someone that's going to hold that space and know how to deal with it. Let's say you go to a therapist who specializes in anxiety. Um, and that's it. That's what they do. And they're really great at that. They're not trauma informed, which I'll tell you what it means. And they are not able to hold and or help treat that that kind of trauma. They don't work with trauma. They work with anxiety. Um, trauma informed clinically looks like having either like EMDR is like the bare minimum, I think, for trauma informed therapists. Um, there is, there's so many different approaches that are add-ons to therapy. And I'll tell you kind of behind the curtain thing. Um, I know you guys, most people don't know this unless you've been through it. When we go to school for, to be a therapist, at least my experience and my, my colleagues that I've talked to, you are getting such a quick snippet of all the different things in the two-year program. So Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know a little bit, like this is my example. I know a little bit about OCD. I know enough to to see it, to spot it. Um, I am not trained to work with OCD. Um, you know, I can work with other things. And when people have OCD and it's not the primary part of our conversation, I'm fine. But if someone's saying, I'm coming to you because I want to be treated by OCD, I don't have the, the trainings on top of just being a therapist to work on it. So because someone says they're a therapist, does not mean that they're able to work with that specific thing. So a good therapist will have that on their website. These are the things that I particularly work with. So EMDR is something I would look for. That is under the umbrella of trauma-informed, you know, and I can pull up the other modalities, but there's many other modalities that that work with trauma as well. IFS, um, yeah, there's so many different ones. And and I think the therapist should have some experience in working with with trauma. And so is that basically what it is? It, it's specific training centered centered around and based in trauma. Yes. Okay. Yes. So that's yeah. it's just a, that's an all encapsulating way of saying, "Hey, I can deal with this shit." Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You want to go to someone that right? Like, no, I'm not going to take a client that is coming for OCD because I don't. No, I'm not trained in OCD, right? Right. Yeah. And and, all, and not all therapists, I mean, I think we'd like to. I think as therapists, sometimes we're a little bit prideful in this where we think because we have this licensing or this title that we can be the fix-all for everybody. We get the savior complex sometimes. Yeah. But it's really dangerous when that happens because I'm one person. There are plenty of people out there that specialize in, in OCD that I can refer out to. Um, and that's, you know, that's how it should work. We should be referring to other clinicians when something is out of our scope of practice. Okay. It's, it, it, it makes sense. And, and I know that 
I just, the gentleman I interviewed that I said that he, he, um, he had experienced a traumatic attack while on a call. He, he was, he had nightmares. He had this very graphic and vivid nightmare. He could smell it. He could feel it. He could feel the sun on his back. He could feel everything. He could feel the blood, all of it. He went to a therapist and it was someone who dealt with car crash victims. And the, the guy said, if you're having trouble sleeping, have you thought about how you, how you, how your, in, your caffeine intake is? And he was like, uh, all right, well, we're done. It has yeah. nothing to do with it. So it, it's, it's that, that's exactly what you just said. This gentleman wasn't trauma informed. He was in over his head. He had no idea how to treat this man. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, and if you can, those are the things you want to vet out before you go see a therapist. You don't have to have that kind of experience. But it's also helpful when you know what to expect. I mean, um, that's the the danger. Dangerous part is, especially with first responders, is they don't always recognize what they're getting into. I mean, for instance, I, I had this happen recently where there was a girl on Instagram who was soliciting herself as a first responder therapist, and she had zero training. She was not licensed. Um, if anything, she could call herself a coach, which just means you call yourself a coach. Um, and she was seeing clients and, and she was, you know, and saying that she worked with first responders. That is so dangerous to me because not that there's not enough space at the table, but you first responders don't know the difference between, you know, someone that has an LMFT or has an uh, ASW or whatever the letters are. You don't look at that stuff. You mm -hmm. just go, oh, you work with first responders. OK, I'm going to come try you. So that's a danger part of it. Yeah. You throw in a couple of buzzwords and you can kind of convince people to do anything. Oh yeah. And I say this all the time, not that there's anything wrong with coaches. Um, but if you're a coach, say you're a coach, do right. not call yourself a therapist because you're not, you didn't, you know, I went to 10 plus years of schooling, um, plus EMDR. I'm also certified as a first responder therapist through a program specifically I do ride-alongs, you know, all these different things so that I can call myself culturally competent on top of my license. Um, if you want to go to a coach, they can definitely help you organize your life and help you get motivated, but they cannot do trauma. They can't, they don't know how to do trauma. They might try, they might be a very compassionate person who has a big heart, but in the long run, that actually does a lot of damage. So on the flip side, the, the, the A side being, you know, I, what's a good fit for a therapist. The flip side of that is how do you know when that relationship has run its course and the usefulness isn't there anymore? And how do, how do you handle that? Because you do become, there is an attachment that, that happens. So you do, you know, it's a professional relationship, but there is this, there's this blurring of lines sometimes. And so you don't, it's like, you don't want to let somebody down. It's like, I don't, how do I tell this person? Ah, you're not, you're not it for me anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I encourage this. Um, I'm very open in, in my approach, at least. I'm very straightforward with my clients where I will say things like, okay, I noticed that we, you know, we met our goal and you're feeling really great. What are we thinking? You know, do we want to, I like to start to taper out therapy after some time where we all, if we're doing every week, we'll go to every other, see how that feels. If there's really a whole, not a whole lot, then we'll start maybe canceling some sessions and spread it out to once a month or just as needed. So I like to make it less uncomfortable for my client by calling it out when I see it. Mm -hmm. I, I have no, it's not helpful to me to work with someone that has nothing to bring into session or 
you know, just here to chit chat. And while I love my clients and I actually, I just let you in on a secret. There's a lot of clients. I would, I wish they weren't my clients because I would love to be friends with them. Mm -hmm. They are really cool people. They make me laugh in session. I enjoy their company. Um, but when we're not doing therapy anymore, there's, it's unethical for me to, to let it run its mm -hmm. course. But if you're in the spot, let's say you've been working with a therapist for a while and they helped you um, do something, but then you, and I've had this as a client when I've seen my therapist, um, there's been times where I feel like she just can't go any further with me. Like that's as far as she can go. And it's very obvious because we're going the same circle every session. It's getting redundant. I feel like I'm not able to go further the way that I'm like desiring to. At that point, um, me have a few options, right? I always encourage openness and just saying like, hey, I really appreciate, you know, you working with me. Um, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna stop therapy for a while. And if I need something, I'll reach out. And a lot of times that happens, right? Like where you have a, uh, a rough month, a year later, I've had this, people terminate sessions, they, they're good or whatever. They start to see someone else for a different issue that could help them better. And then they come back around in a year that happens. Um, so as therapists, we are, we're trained to be okay with this. It doesn't hurt our feelings. Of course, I'm going to maybe miss you and think about you when I don't see you anymore um, because we have developed a relationship, but I'm not like, oh, man, really that hurts my heart so much. <laughs> Why would you go to someone else? Like, you know, and I've had people ghost me and I think most therapists have that just because people avoid the uncomfortability of having to disavoid someone. But um, when people ghost me, I feel like, I don't take it personally. To me, it just shows like, obviously it was un too uncomfortable for them to say anything or um, a really easy way to do it is just to not rebook another session. I let all my clients book online on their own unless they otherwise in session and ask to book with me while we're in session um, or they want me to book for them. But most of the time they book for themselves. So if they don't book again, I might check in on them once, right. but I'm not going to stalk my clients and be like, why aren't you coming back? Like maybe they can't afford it. You know, there's lots of different reasons. Maybe, maybe they're not in the right headspace to continue therapy. Maybe that's as far as they want to go. There's lots of reasons to discontinue and there's not a problem with it. So general advice is don't be uncomfortable. Tell them. If you can, yeah. Do it over email or text if that's more comfortable. Right. I let it as therapists. We're not like, oh, wow. You know, <laughs> why didn't they tell me to my face? Not at all. It's, it's okay. So we're coming up on an hour. And, and I think those are probably pretty good times for these shows. Um, again, yeah. there's things on this list I'm looking at that we haven't covered. So I'll bug you again later on down the road and see if you're still willing to do something. Um, uh, we, we, we actually got through the show and I didn't ask, ask about sex or intimacy at all this time. So that's perfect, <laughs> which, um, uh, I think is huge in the f first responder community though. I think it's, it's ignored in the first responder community. You know, we treat it one way when, but, but we, we, you, you hear quite often people brag about it, but it's not treated in, in a serious manner. It's not treated as a, no, there is an issue going on here. And how do we get to the cause and, and how do we get to the, to the, uh, maybe the cure, you know, maybe the cure is not the, the right word, but that's, I, I, sure. I think that we ignore it a little too, well, we definitely ignore it. It's not a little too much. We just ignore it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And, and, every, and anyone listening, you know, you can go back and listen to our other podcasts. Um, you can also go onto my website and I have 
Um, I've done, gosh, over 20 podcasts. I think they're all recorded on there. I've got about four or five that are just on sex and intimacy and first responder relationships that go in a bit more detail. Um, and if that's something that someone's interested in and it perks their interest, I, yeah, I'd be happy for you to listen and have conversation about it if anybody wants to. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's see if we can get back together again in a couple of months or a few months and, and see how things are. And, and we can, we can work up a whole nother list of topics to talk about if you're willing. Absolutely. Yeah. That'd be great. I'm going to ask you about a book though. I know you're a reader and, and, and I've seen a couple of them you posted on Instagram, but, um, what, what's a book to, to suggest to the audience again? So I can't remember which ones I'm going to turn around to my bookshelf. You're right. I can't remember I suggested last time in which one I did not. Um, and so I might repeat myself in this way. Um, I really enjoyed what the one I just, oh, I just got a good one. This man I met in the grocery store, I'm going to go off and tell you the backstory real quick. I met this man in the grocery store and he actually was in front of me in line. Where is his? Um, oh, there it is. So he was in front of me in line and I heard him tell the cashier that he was um, retired CHP actually. Mm -hmm. And being a nosy person, <laughs> I asked him, did you say this? He said, yeah. And so we started talking. I told him what I did. He wrote this book. It's called Surviving the Line of Duty. Um, it is from a Christian perspective, which personally I enjoy. This might not be a book for everybody, but it's not just for law enforcement. It's for all first responders. But this book really talks about his journeys through PTSD. It also talks about um, there's just so much in this book. There's a lot of wealth and knowledge. So it's called Surviving the Line of Duty. And it's from um, Dan Barba, B-A-R-B-A. -B -A. You can find it on Amazon. This man is solid. He's awesome. I really enjoyed having conversation with him. And um, I've read his book and it's really great. Awesome. And, and Surviving the Line of Duty. Yep. I'm I'm typing it in right now so I don't forget because I will walk away from this and, and completely forget what you said, except I'll just go through and listen to the transcript. Uh, yeah, perfect. Well, I, I, once again, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I appreciate you coming on. Um, tell us again where people can find you. Sure. Um, my website is destiny Morris therapy at gmail. Or at gmail. Sorry. Well, that's my email. Destiny. <laughs> therapy.com my email address is destiny therapy at gmail.com but on my website um there's a little box where you can um you can find me on there you can also find me on instagram at um on underscore being underscore resilient you can dm me again if anyone needs resources in a different state um if anyone wants to connect with financial assistance through the Overwatch Collective for therapy, I am more than happy to point you in those directions. Yeah, I can't I can't say enough about what those guys do with the Overwatch Collective. So um yeah, keep keep up that work. That's that that what they're doing and what you're doing with them is is awesome. So keep that going. And I just want to remind everybody that you were in, initially on episode seventy nine. I uh, you found it. Yeah, I did. So you're episode seventy nine and and I know this, you'll be in triple digits when this one comes out. So I'll, I'll let you know before it comes out. It's going to be, it might be beginning of February before this one comes out. I've got a, I've got a few and I'm, I'm, I've got a couple more weeks on this holiday break that I took just to kind of decompress a little bit. Good for you. Yeah, no worries. I'm excited to hear. All right. So if you're willing, I'll get back in touch with you and we'll see if we can set up another time because I do want to talk about some of the other things. I, I really want to talk about the, um, 
Well, you, you said one of the things you came up with was the biggest things uh, first responders come to see you for. I want to get into that a little bit, but I also want to talk about substance abuse and first responders. So, Perfect. yeah, let's let's bookmark there. That sounds like a good, a good thing. This time up. we'll remember it. Maybe we won't have to listen to the episode to figure out what we're going to talk about this time. Sounds good. All right. Hey, go enjoy the rest of your afternoon or evening now, I guess. And and, uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. All right. We're out. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com, for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourself and remember to check in on each other.